It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, October 17th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, some Mississippians call for de-escalation in the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Then a new report finds major disparities in the state's justice system for youth. Plus, two major federal grants could help Mississippi communities become more resilient to natural disasters. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Protesters gathered yesterday in Jackson to call for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas following more than a week of violent attacks and bombings. Israel locked down the borders of the Gaza Strip, cutting off water, electricity, and Internet access. While some of those restrictions have been lifted, many people who live in Gaza have been unable to evacuate. Attacks on Israel have left more than 1,400 Israelis dead. In response, airstrikes on Gaza have killed more than 2,800 Palestinians, according to health officials in the region. Anti-war activists are calling the attacks on Gaza a genocide. That's Jackson resident Delana Tavakul. She helped organize Monday's rally. She has created an online petition opposing the killing of Palestinians in Gaza. How I feel today generally is extremely sad uh, and extremely angry. And that's how I felt this week. And it's how any person who either in their own lifetime or in the lifetimes of the people before them knew occupation, knew oppression, knew subjugation, feel a little bit sad and a little bit angry every day. And I feel that a lot right now. How I feel about this morning and this past hour, uh, I feel amazed. I grew up in this country. I think that you all did uh, too for at least some portion of your lives. Um, feeling afraid to speak for Palestine. I'm shocked that over 150,000 people came out in London in support of Palestinians. I'm shocked at how many people in the West are finally developing 
developing the confidence to come out and say that what's happening right now, what has been happening for the last 75 years against indigenous Palestinians by the apartheid state of Israel is not okay. I'm not shocked that people in Jackson have come out to say that what's happening against Palestinians is not okay. The people in Jackson, Mississippi, who've been here for so long, know subjugation, oppression, occupation, apartheid, genocide. So I'm not shocked that the people in Jackson know that we need to stand with Palestine, we need to stand with each other, we need to stand with the Muslim community. That six-year-old boy in Chicago who was stabbed to death for being a Palestinian Muslim, his mother attacked. We need to be speaking for Palestine right now. We cannot be silent. We're all government, government officials with our money are expressing total support, total support for a state that's advocating for an ethnic cleansing. Several speakers clarified their show of support was not for Hamas, but for Palestinian civilians. Tabakul says she expects some negative reaction to her speaking out against Israel's leaders. I'm scared for everyone in the world who has the courage to speak out in support of Palestine. Because the apparatus to attack us is huge. And at the same time, what a person who is living in Gaza right now, the fear that they feel, like, how could I not? How could we not say something? Like, what, what is the fear? Especially, you know, I, as a light-skinned Iranian woman in Jackson, what fear could I possibly feel here that could come anywhere close to the fear that people in Gaza and that Palestinians everywhere are experiencing, have been experiencing every day for 75 years? And so what right do I have to stay silent and let their fear persist? because of mine. Joining the rally are dozens of Jackson's residents as well as faith leaders. Amin Abdur Rashid is the imam at Masjid Muhammad Islamic Complex in Jackson. We ask that the prayers and peace be sent on all of his noble messengers from Abraham, Isaac, Ismail, Jacob, David, Solomon, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, the seal of the prophethood I mean, we would like to send condolences to all of the innocent people killed on both sides of this conflict. But Allah says in the Quran that he honors all of the children of Adam, our father. So one group is not superior to another. When the Europeans in 1917 decided that they would carve up the world after World War I, they decided that Israel would have a home in Palestine. They did not bother to ask the Palestinians. They did not include them at all. This is typical of the powers, the colonial powers that be, to not have any regard for those that they subdue. So we stand with our brothers and sisters in Palestine. We stand for justice. We stand for the equity and equality and their inclusion in the decisions that are being made. And we don't support our dollars being spent at $3.8 billion, $3. billion a year to support 
this oppressive apartheid racist regime. Mississippi's entire congressional delegation has pledged their support to Israel following last week's attack on that country by Hamas. Second District Congressman Benny Thompson said he would like to see a third term were rather a long-term agreement reached between Israel and Palestine for a peaceful two-state system. Coming up, legal advocates for youth say there are better and cheaper ways to help those in juvenile detention centers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. in-person and virtual workforce wednesday workshop the power of legacy will be on october 18th from 11:30 a.m to 12:30 p.m guest speaker angelica owens will share information about the cie legacy leadership program for family business owners she will also discuss its resources benefits and future podcasts more information is available from the education tab on mpbonline.org This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A new report by the Southern Poverty Law Center examines the racial disparities in Mississippi's juvenile justice system. The report finds black students are far more likely to be incarcerated. In turn, the cost to help those students get an education and a better outlook on life goes up. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Delvin Davis, Senior Policy Analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center. This paper is actually uh, the second part of a five-part series of research reports that we're doing across the Deep South. Uh, the first one came out this summer on Louisiana, with their juvenile system there. Well, they had a situation where they were incarcerating teenagers at Angola, a uh, maximum security prison there. But in each of the five states that we have a footprint in, with SBOC, uh, we're, we're seeing that East State is pretty unique uh, as far as how uh, East State is handling youth crime and youth incarceration across the state. Uh, but there, there's also some some themes that are pretty common across all five states. So um, so we wanted to take a look at Mississippi. Um, some of the unique things there is, one, just the dynamic of having leaning more into incarceration, uh, higher incarceration rates for youth that are in youth court. But at the same time, having a uh, lower percentage of kids going through the diversion program and also kind of correlating with um, a lack of resources to alternatives to uh, incarceration for, for youth. Um, a lot of that is uh, due to, to um, lack of funding from the, the federal government, uh, but also just choices made from the state level to not devote state resources and state monies to those alternatives to incarceration. So, um uh, so a lot of that is just kind of based on a lot of other things with uh, kind of the culture of uh, how we see young black children, especially. And uh, there's a lot of racial disparities across the uh, juvenile justice system. But, but all in all, Mississippi is leaning more into incarceration as the uh, the primary approach to, to youth crime as opposed to more rehabilitative and uh, restorative means that are uh, probably more productive and uh, less expensive. Could you just clarify for me what a diversion program would mean or diversion in youth court would mean? Yes, yeah, so, um, so someone, uh, a young person that's in youth court, the judge has discretion to uh, either put that person behind bars or to have something that is that deals with the issue but 
uh, doesn't require putting that kid behind bars to, to deal with the issue. Uh, so it might be something is like youth counseling or uh, some sort of community service or things like that that are um, still holding the kid accountable for uh, that person allegedly did, but uh, but doesn't require putting that person in a, a carceral setting. And so there's been a shift, you were saying, since about 2013, where diversion has been less of a priority and kind of replacing that has been incarceration of youth? Yes, yeah, so that's the, uh, as far back as the, the, the data that I, that I had access to uh, going back to 2013 to 2022, we see those two trends, one going up with uh, incarceration and the other going down with uh, the diversion rates. Um, so we're, you know, just kind of seeing that with, um, on top of some of the other things with, there was funding for uh, these programs called uh, Adolescent Opportunity Programs, or AOPs, which were usually nonprofits that would provide something like mentoring or youth counseling, sometimes mental health assistance, uh, things like that, that were uh, alternatives to uh, really help kids and really, you know, help them to heal if need be all were programs that were outside of the uh, juvenile justice system where you're incarcerating kids. Funding for that was largely dependent on TANF funding up until 2016. And uh, at 2016, the, the federal government said TANF funding was no longer something you can use for this, these type of programs. So the funding stopped and never was replaced by Mississippi uh, from state funds. So. Uh, so one of the things that we're advocating for in this paper is that Mississippi should uh, reinvest or reprioritize these types of programs through the budget. And my understanding is that while these youth incarceration rates have risen in Mississippi, they've actually, the number of youth arrests have gone down both nationally and in Mississippi uh, by a pretty high percentage since 2000. Could you speak a little more about that? Yeah, so uh, I think nationally since over the last 20 years, since 2000, Naturally, the, the youth arrest rate has declined like 80%, and that's also kind of correlated with Mississippi, which has declined 82% over that same time. Um, so it's, it's a statement that kind of debunks some of the natural myths that we have with largely black, black youth and uh, black boys in particular. There's this super predator myth that was really prevalent um, earlier on in the, in the 90s, 1990s, uh, that spoke to mostly young black urban youth being more prone to violence and, and criminal things and, you know, drug activity and, you know, just things that were a lot of fear mongering about what black youth are, are prone to do. But with the, the last 20 years since the 90s, it pretty much has debunked, at least with the data, that crime hasn't exploded since the 90s like uh, the super predator men had predicted. But at the same time, so too, you know, we're having fewer arrests, but in the last two years, there's been a higher use of incarceration. So there's a disconnect there with crimes going down, but incarceration going up. And it's probably an opportunity for us to re- reconsider how do we how do we address youth crime, and can we do that in a way that's more restorative for, for children? Uh, being, these are uh, the most vulnerable part of our population. Um, the, the human brain doesn't finish uh, developing until the mid, one's mid twenties. So it's um, these are young people that are, um, you know, in their most more susceptible part of of, of their lives, and uh, more important, just make mistakes and um, you know have maturity issues and 
more prone to things like peer pressure and things like that. Um, how can we help these children um, just be able to mature and have the resources necessary to help them into a successful adulthood? Delvin Davis is Senior Policy Analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Coming up, nearly $2 billion are being made available for communities to prepare for severe weather. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Autocorrect on MPB Think Radio, helping you correct your auto problems. Our host is Coach Charlie Milton, ASC Certified Master Technician. Let me help save you some money working on your cars. Listen to our podcast, Autocorrect. If you aren't near a radio, you can still listen to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. You can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone or listen online at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Federal Emergency Management Agency has opened applications for two grant programs to help communities prepare for natural disasters. The grants total nearly $2 billion. They can be used by state, county, tribal, or city and towns. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Jackie Bell, Mitigation Division Director at FEMA. She says these funds could help Mississippi communities be better prepared for disasters, such as tornadoes, hurricanes, and floods. The first one is the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Programs. I'll refer to that as BRIC. It supports states, local communities, and tribes and territories as they undertake hazard mitigation projects. And these projects will focus on reducing that risk they face from disasters and natural hazards. The BRIC program aims to shift the federal focus from being reactive to disaster spending to a proactive investment in community resilience. And we are proud to announce that the annual um, grant program for BRIC has made about $1 billion available to fund these types of projects. Communities will be able to use this funding under BRIC to better understand their disaster risk and vulnerability and conduct community-driven resiliency through hazard mitigation planning and project actions. For BRIC, there's a lot of flexibility when it comes to projects. They can be used for hazard mitigation planning and design to harden infrastructure against extreme weather like hurricanes or help communities build safe rooms to keep families and individuals safe during tornadoes. The funding can also be used to help communities improve building codes, which is one of the most effective ways to mitigate against natural disasters. A 2019 study by the National Institute of Building Sciences found that adopting the latest building codes saves $11 per $1 invested. Within the BRIC program this year, FEMA is putting aside funding to help on this front. So $112 million for state building codes. So that is $2 million per state maximum. And then $25 million is set aside for tribal building codes. Tell us a little bit more about the Flood Mitigation Assistance Program. This program will also provide $800 million to fund projects that mitigate flood risks facing homes and communities across the nation. This program provides funding to protect life and property from future natural disasters. The Flood Mitigation Assistance Program is a competitive annual program that provides these funds to states, tribal, and territory and local governments. So let's face it, climate change is affecting our communities and the flood mitigation assistance grants can be used to reduce or eliminate that risk 
of repetitive flood damage to buildings insured under the National Flood Insurance Program. The focus is on mitigating severe rep loss properties and repetitive loss properties that have incurred those multiple flood losses and NFIP claim payments. Projects will also help reduce flood risk in communities disproportionately impacted by flooding. Funding can be used to help elevate homes that are susceptible to flooding or empower communities to move towards acquisitions to get properties out of harm's way permanently. Communities may consider projects, for example, that include cooling stations, cool roofs, cool pavements, using green infrastructure and nature-based solutions, and green walls to address extreme heat effects. These grant programs provide funds, again, these grant programs provide funds to states, local communities, tribes, and territories for eligible resiliency activities. The goal is to build a culture of preparedness and strengthen the nation's readiness for extreme weather and other hazards and ensure that the most underserved communities are ready to protect against the climate crisis. Now, as you've mentioned, this is public assistance for places like state, local, tribal, and territorial uh, municipalities. How do you expect um, Mississippi communities and other communities around the nation to be able to uh, see this and visualize how it can best be used in their communities? We do webinars to our um, local partners to show and demonstrate effective projects that have been um, utilized and funded in the past. So there's a lot of good examples of projects that have been funded and uh, have been very successful. So we, we do have those webinars um, we also, FEMA.gov has great resources that, you know, anybody can go on and see what different types of projects have been funded. So you've got that, that access to. So there's a lot of information out there showing how or demonstrating how these projects can be very effective. What are the specific deadlines for this funding? The application period um, opens today, October 16th, and the deadline is February 29th. But I will say that the state um, emergency management offices have their own internal deadline, which is usually shorter than our deadline because they have to look at these projects and review them um, for eligibility and approval, and then they submit them. I wanted to go back to something you spoke about earlier, and that's on the flood mitigation uh, assistance program and how that mm-hmm. funding can be used. It seems like there might be a more to flood mitigation than just the simple put-up levees that might help redirect the water. Can you talk about the difference between flood prevention and environmental resilience, setting up programs that go beyond just the what people might think of as the most common ways to mitigate floods? One of the pieces I talked about under the flood mitigation assistance program was that green infrastructure. So looking at projects that, to your point, not only mitigate the, the flood as the risk, but also help you know, um, improve the environment, but also the watershed area and just, you know, um, make sure that we're building for the future versus not just um, for the immediate risk, I think is is a good way of looking at it, making sure that the community is getting, you know, a project that's going to help them in the future out years too. So looking at, um, you know, green infrastructure is always a lot more attractive and, and usually provides a lot more um, protection than just doing a, a hard scape, you know, kind of like a drainage system. I think you just got to look beyond just the immediate risk. We've been speaking with Jackie Bell, who's the Mitigation Division's Director at FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency. Jackie, thank you so much for talking with us. 
Thank you. Appreciate it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.